The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Melissa Lee. Here's what's ahead. In just a few minutes, we'll get the results of today's 10-year bond auction, something investors have been waiting anxiously today for. We've got that for you. Plus, one year after the pandemic was declared, retail has been turned on its head, not only in the way we shop, but in the way we pay as consumers said goodbye to cash and hello to contactless. Is that boom here to stay? And Roblox set to hit the market any minute now. The company saw an 85% jump in users last year as COVID-19 shutdowns sent people online. Can that momentum last as the country reopens? But we begin with today's rally. Dom Chi's got all the numbers. Dom. You didn't think it was going to follow up yesterday's big move, Melissa, with ones that we're seeing today. But yes, it's green across the screen and right near the session highs. The Dow Industrial is up 435 points at this point state, about one and a half percent gains there. The S&P about three quarters of one percent and underperformance, though, in the green from the Nasdaq composite. Big gainers yesterday, only up about just shy of one half of one percent today. Now, that Dow Industrials outperformance and Nasdaq underperformance is thematic over the last several months at this point here. Take a look at these two ETFs, one that tracks large cap growth stocks and one that tracks large cap value stocks. The value stocks are in orange. They've been tracking pretty closely for the better part of about six months now. And then just about Again, a few weeks back, we've seen a huge underperformance in growth and an outperformance in value-oriented names. So think financials, think energy, think industrials, think that sort of thing. That trend is something to watch, and we'll we'll probably continue here for at least the time being. Uh, Take a look at the meme stocks. Scott Wapner just mentioned it at the end of the last hour here, this idea that GameStop has been all over the place. Well, it's only up about 4% right now, but that doesn't tell the whole story. Cost is up about 61 percent, AMC up about two and a half percent and Express shares up about 31 percent. So many of these Internet messaging board darlings are very volatile. And just how volatile, Melissa, let me show you an intraday chart of what's happening with GameStop stock today, because at the highs of the session, you're talking just around three hundred and forty eight dollars and fifty cents at the lows of the day. You're talking about one hundred and seventy two dollars and six cents or thereabouts. That's how much the range has been. Multiple trading halts. Again, checking out those intraday action for GameStop. It just goes to show you many of these things are not for the faint of heart. GameStop very much in play today after a number of trading halts. Melissa, we'll keep an eye on this. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you. This week, tech slid into correction territory, then rebounded just a day later, pushing the Nasdaq to its best gains of the year. Have we seen the bottom, or could another rate-induced sell-off be on the way? Joining us now, Sherry Paul, Senior Portfolio Manager at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management, and Robert Teeter, Head of the Investment Policy and Strategy Group at Silvercrest Asset Management. Um, Good to have you both. Sherry, I I will start with you. Um, You see the 10-year yield. You're targeting 1.7%. What we've seen in terms of the rotation has really been fueled, supercharged by, by the climb in rates we've seen. If, if rates do stabilize at 1.7, do we still continue to see as fierce a rotation as, as we've witnessed in the past few weeks? Uh, well, I think it's a great question. Thank you for having me. Um, I think right now investors are feeling somewhat of what I would call change fatigue. 
um, whether that's between their lifestyle and the, with the pandemic. Um, but I think there's another big change moment coming, and that is the, the digitizing of the U.S. economy. So to answer your question within technology, I think instead of looking at uh, either or, that clients should be really integrating their portfolios to reflect both of these themes. Uh, and the way that we're talking about it to clients is to think about idea laddering in a portfolio thinking about a portfolio maturation around what those idea maturities might look like in a portfolio. And uh, if you think about it in that way, then technology continues to hold a really important place in portfolios, regardless of of the reflationary trade, which would be more of a short-term idea maturation. Mm -hmm. Uh, As vaccines roll out and the economy reopens, the reflation trade is now underway. But these longer-term themes manifesting um, need to be importantly integrated in a portfolio because uh, we've got seismic um, shifts happening and now technology, frankly, is the underpinning of the majority of the sectors in the U.S. economy. So instead of thinking about should we own tech, I think we want uh, to encourage investors to think about which sectors are now benefiting from the underlying infrastructure change within technology that's being delivered into those sectors. Uh, financial services would be a perfect example of that in terms of cost staising. You mentioned earlier mm-hmm. digitizing transactions, and uh, that's certainly something that's going to help banks save a lot of money. Right. So those themes are definitely going to continue forward. Uh, Sherry, Robert, hold on. We've got the results of the much-anticipated 10-year auction, so we want to go to Rick Santelli for that. Rick? Yes, I'll tell you what, everybody is anticipating this auction, primarily because yesterday's three-year short maturity, we're really thinking about that seven-year that was horrible a couple weeks ago. Well, 38 billion 10-year notes yielded 1.523. The one issued market was trading 151 and a half, but yields have been dropping all morning. I gave this one a C minus, Charlie minus, and I think I was being very generous. Let's go through it, shall we? Uh, 10 auction average bid to cover 2.42, a little bit light here at 2.38. 56.8 was indirect. That is the lightest since November 20. 10 auction average, as you see there, 61%. Okay, maybe the one bright spot, maybe the most important bright spot, direct bidders, that might include maybe the Japanese, 17.8. A couple and a half points above the 15% 10 auction average and 25.4 go to primary dealers. That number is a bit too high. So none of the metrics are really spectacular. I could have gone a D plus here, but I do cut some slack that the overall market was sliding in yield, rising in prices. The equities remain firm. And of course, long maturities are what it's all about at this point, especially considering this morning might be the last bus stop of the low CPI inflation data for this cycle. The the last bus stop. That's a nice way of putting it. Rick, thank you. Rick Santelli. Um, We want to resume our market conversation, bring back in Sherry Paul and Robert Teeter. Robert, I'll go to you. How are you viewing technology now, especially um, with yields where they are? And have you seen this pullback as as a buying opportunity? Are you taking the longer term view on this? Yeah, well, this rotation has been pretty powerful towards the cyclical side. Um, We think it could continue a bit longer here as investors are really pulling forward some of the earnings they're expecting off the strong economy. Um, But I think you have to be careful to not get too carried away with that. You know, as COVID starts to wane, investors are going to start asking what's next. And at that point, I think it's important to have a balance between the organic growth that you get from technology, um, as well as some of the COVID cyclicality that you're getting from the cyclicals here. So why do you think that uh, everything is selling off wholesale? I mean, it's not just the high value names. We've, we've highlighted uh, the chips. We've highlighted software names as, as groups that have been hit the hardest, the Zooms, the Pelotons, et cetera. But at the same time, you've got an Apple, which is leading declines as well, which is basically flat over the past six months. Microsoft, almost the same story. Netflix, the same story, Robert. So 
um, there's this wholesale selling of tech without any sort of um, discrimination between the ones that might have that organic growth and might actually be a beneficiary of reopening as well as exhibiting the organic growth that you're talking about. Right. Well, I, I think there's two reasons behind that. One is, and, and Rick was touching on it with the importance of rates here, as rates have climbed a little bit higher. That challenges valuations and particularly challenges the higher valuation stocks. Um, but I think the other issue is just, again, a natural rebalancing. You know, these stocks have performed quite well. Uh, it's important to keep them in line in terms of sizing. And again, it's in- important to have some balance as the real focus here is this massive economic growth that we're seeing and the massive uh, increase in earnings that we're expecting to see. And so that's allowed investors to rotate a bit and that's put a little pressure on the tech stocks. Um, but we think that's healthy and natural. Yeah. Sherry, where do you where do you stand on and how far along this rotation is in terms of the valuations of the cyclicals now and whether or not they are actually pricing in the growth that we are going to see uh, for the re- remainder of the year? Yeah, I think that things are pretty well priced in, but I I do think that that things could actually be better than any of us could ever dream of at this point. Um, We've got, you know, $5 trillion sitting in money market funds. We've got a stimulus package that's on the verge of passing. Uh, We've got potentially, you know, another bill coming in terms of infrastructure spending. And we've got a really successful now accelerated vaccine rollout. And so, with the 10-year Treasury now coming in at one and a half, and Morgan Stanley thinks we in the year at 1.7, uh, the reflation trade could actually accelerate uh, in ways that that people aren't accepting. Now that said, I also want to go back again to that. Also means that these longer-trend themes in terms of digitizing the U.S. economy also should play an important role in portfolios, and that is going to span, uh, you know, from from biotechnology to uh, genomics to space exploration to how we pay for things, that this is a debate that had been going on in the U.S. economy for years, corporate America trying to convince the consumer that they could consume this economy remotely, and that debate is frankly over. Um, the adaptation the adopting of uh, the usability of the technologies is now here to stay. So we should not forget to be very forward thinking about the investing opportunities for clients, to, particularly around things like blockchain, uh-huh. cybersecurity, biotechnology. It's it's interesting, Robert, how quickly consensus changes, because Sherry had just said that, you know, she thinks that the, that the recovery is going to be much stronger than any, anybody had anticipated. That used to be contrarian. And now that feels almost like it's becoming the consensus view. So at this point, Robert... Does that concern you <laughs> that maybe everybody is baking in an extremely strong recovery? It's, it's a great observation, and it's certainly something to start to be a bit concerned about. Um, we think it has a, a bit more room to go. Um, but once, once COVID starts to wane, uh, we think investors uh, really focus on what's next and what's coming next. And there you have to have some of those longer-term structural headwinds. So there are some cyclical areas like industrials that have you know, maybe a changing policy mix that, that is favorable to them. Um, But again, looking ahead, really careful to keep that balance between organic growth and cyclical growth. All right. Good to see you both. Thank you so much for your analysis. Sherry Paul and Robert Teeter, we appreciate it. All right. We are still awaiting the first trade of online gaming platform Roblox. The uh, NICE set a reference price of 45 bucks a share last night, though it is indicating around 70 right now. It appears as its patience is about to pay off. Roblox delayed its scheduled IPO in December after watching the market get too frothy, taking the direct listing route instead. For more, let's bring in Doug Clinton, managing partner at Loop Ventures. Um, Good to see you, Doug. What are you anticipating for this in terms of where it looks like it's going to go at, which is, you know, 60 five, let's say, uh, per unit. Um, and, and what it's pricing at at this point, given we're coming out of the pandemic and we're going to enter tougher comps. 
Well, I think the price to me says that consensus, as you talked about in the last segment, is that they're going to have very strong growth and continued growth coming out of the pandemic tailwind that they had where they were up over 100% year over year for bookings and revenue. If you look at the company's projections for $2 billion in bookings this year, that's about 10% year over year growth. So it is a difficult comp, but it seems like they are maintaining the users that came onto the platform during the pandemic and are continuing to spend a lot of time on the platform. I'm a little surprised how high the price is given this is a direct listing. Normally we don't see big moves like this out of the gate for a direct listing, but I think people are very excited that they're finally able to invest in Roblox. Yeah, especially as every single share is eligible to be sold from early investors to, to insiders, et cetera. Um, how should we look at that growth then, Doug, since it did see astronomical growth because of the pandemic, but in its latest forecast, for instance, you know, for DAUs, growth is expected to be 59 to 68% year on year. But for the second quarter, that growth is supposed to be 3 to 9% year on year. And that gets to that heart of tougher comps. So do you still price it as a high growth company, even though we're not seeing those metrics bear out? I think you really have to think about the next three to five years and what mm-hmm. that growth picture looks like. And if you move beyond these tough comps, I think you're going to see a company that's probably growing something more in the strong double digits year over year. I think they could sustain, you know, let's say something like 20 to 30 percent annual revenue or bookings growth over the next several years. Um, and I think that is probably a better indication than what we're seeing right now off that tough, uh, tough comp from last year. And and what, in your view, is the most important metric? There was a study out um, from Sensor Tower that lifetime player spending across App Store and Google Play was two and a half billion dollars with about half of that coming just last year. So so is it is it revenue per user or revenue per user over the lifetime of of the player? Is it DAUs? I mean, what what to use the most important metric? I think it's two things. I I look very closely at bookings. I mean, that's just an indication of how much people are just spending on the platform, buying Robux, which is the virtual currency that fuels the economy in the game. And the other thing I look at is the amount of time spent. I think if we continue to see time spent be stable and even continue to grow some, that's a good tailwind that provides users a reason to keep spending money on that currency in the game. And this is uh, one that's been mentioned a lot on the Reddit chat boards, Doug. I know you've pointed that out to our producers. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for for a company just hitting the public market? Certainly a good thing in the near term in terms of absolute stock price. I think anytime Reddit gets a hold of something, you have to probably be a little bit cautious. If you're looking at it as a long-term investor, that's always how we think about investing at Loop. And so when you see, like we talked about earlier, a move of 50% in a direct listing on day one, it gives us a little bit of pause about what the near term could bring. But I still think you've got a company that has great growth prospects. They have a very stable user base and they really own that preteen demo. And so I do think it's a great company to keep an eye on for long term uh, investing, even if the near term here is a little bit choppier because of that excitement. All right, Doug, great to speak with you. Thank you. Doug Clinton of Loop. Coming up, Adidas reporting sales growth, predicting a strong 2021 recovery and reinstating its dividend. But that's not all. It's also got a great brand new partnership with Peloton. We'll hear from the CEO next. Plus, to swipe or not to swipe, the adoption of contactless payments kicked into high year amid the pandemic. Will the trend and the huge rally we've seen in those stocks continue? The exchange is back in two. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? 
With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Shares of Adidas higher after the sportswear giant said it expects a strong rebound in sales this year. Sarah Eisen spoke with the company's CEO just a short time ago. She joins us now with more. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Melissa. Adidas today setting out a number of ambitious goals for the next five years after coming off of its worst year during which sales tumbled and operating profits slid more than 70%. Now the company is rolling out what it's calling own the game strategy. It projects 8 to 10% sales growth per year over the next five years by doubling its e-commerce sales and its direct-to-consumer business by 2025. CEO Casper Rorstad saying this year he expects double-digit growth fueled by market share gains in the U.S., in China, and in Europe, and a product pipeline that he says has been in the works for months. Also, the new stimulus money just passed in the U.S. should help. When stimulus goes into the market, it goes to what we call affordable luxury. We are in those categories, and people will tend to spend around our product area. So we're very happy with that stepping. Of course, what's much more important is that you get the vaccine done, you get to a you know, sustainable environment where people can start working again, and that's going to be the real kicker for the environment. So the stimulus is good. The much more important one is the vaccine, and that will help us drive growth for the next years to come. Rorschach went on to criticize Europe for a disappointing and slow rollout of its vaccine, says they haven't been doing a good job aside from the U.K., but he says it doesn't change Adidas's plans. The company also announcing today and teasing, really, a new partnership with Peloton. They've also hired some new creative stars like Jerry Lorenzo, who was previously at Nike, to build some excitement around a new basketball line at Adidas, which Rorschach said will be marked by lifestyle and not just by the athletics. You can watch the full interview with Casper Rorstad. Melissa, we talk everything from the future of retail to, of course, his partnership with Kanye West and the Easy Line and whether he's considered putting him on the board as Kanye has demanded at 3 p.m. closing bell. We've got a lot more on that. Oh, that's quite a tease. I do have a question, Sarah, about uh, <laughs> Adidas's tough year last year. Why was it that it, it fared so poorly when the likes of a Nike and a Lululemon were able to capitalize on the trends of the pandemic, people staying at home, wanting comfy clothes, et cetera, et cetera. And now he thinks coming out of the pandemic, that's going to be its sweet spot. It's a really good question. And it's something that investors have to ask themselves. Adidas lost share in, in the U.S. footwear category, according to MPD Group. They lost about 90 basis points of share down to nine and a half percent market share. So while we did see a lot of enthusiasm for athleisure, and you saw that in growth of Nike, Lululemon, even their tough competitor Puma over in Europe managed to outgrow Adidas. What Worsted is saying is that they're taking this opportunity to refocus. They're getting rid of Reebok, for instance. They're sort of consolidating when it comes to their strategy around sports, getting rid of 
more extraneous categories like a field hockey and just really focusing on basketball and running and lifestyle performance, focusing on three core geographies, North America, China, Europe. That, that's what the strategy conversation is about. But really, you and I know it comes down to who has the it sneakers. Mm-hmm. And, and really what we've seen there is that Yeezy and Kanye West continue to do well and continue to sell out right away. And that's helped. But the rest of the line just hasn't captured the imagination and the enthusiasm like, for instance, what we've seen out of Nike and out of some of the competitors. And that is something that Adidas is hoping to change. And he said they've been working 18 months on this new product pipeline, hired some new designers, and are ready to gear up and outgrow the category for this year. But now they have to execute and and perform because they are making some big promises, which is why the stock is up. Yeah. Sarah, thank you. See you on Closing Bell today. Sarah Eisen. Coming up, the pandemic changed retail in a big way. The evolution that should have taken years was condensed into just a few months. We'll take a look at the new face of the sector ahead. Plus, the market strategist who called the pullback says investors should buy the dip in the fang stocks. We'll tell you why. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Welcome back to The Exchange. The market's now higher across the board with the Dow um, hitting a record in today's session. It is up 455 points or 1.4 percent. The Nasdaq roller coaster ride here intraday. It had been up more than uh, 1% today. It is now up by two-tenths of a percent. As far as sectors right now, 10 of 11 sectors are in the green today with financials and materials in the lead. No surprise, technology is in the red. And we're watching shares of General Electric. They are lower on news that struck a $30 billion deal to combine its aircraft leasing unit with Ireland's Aircap Holdings. CEO Larry Culp telling CNBC's David Faber that the proceeds will be used to pay down debt. GE is also announcing a one-for-eight reverse stock split. The stock is down almost 5%. And take a look at Buzz. That's the ETF tracking social media mentions of stocks. That's up just over a percent. Actually, it's up now eight-tenths of a percent. It's been underperforming the S&P and Nasdaq since its launch just last Thursday. Chewy, Shopify, and Zynga, some of the worst performers uh, since it launched. Now let's get to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Melissa. Hello, everyone. U.S. and Chinese officials have set their first high-level in-person meeting. They will hold a two-day summit next week in Alaska. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken will lead the American delegation. The U.N. Security Council has agreed on a statement condemning violence against Myanmar coup protesters and also urging military restraint. References to the coup itself were dropped due to opposition from China, Russia, India, and Vietnam. The Senate has confirmed Marsha Fudge as the next Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Fudge says that her first priority is protecting the millions of people who've fallen behind on rent and mortgages during the pandemic. And this is pretty cute. This cute baby gorilla now has a name. Tilla! Zookeeper celebrated her naming with a buffet of vegetables, fruit, and rice. Tilla was chosen for more than 17,000 suggestions that were submitted. Melissa, I'll send it back to you. They got all of those suggestions in just one week time. So lots of uh, wow. public anticipation for that naming. Lots of enthusiasts out there. Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. 
Well, BTIG's Julian Emanuel warned in mid-February that the jump in yields would set off a stock market correction, and he was right. Julian now believes that some of the big-cap tech growth stocks, like the FANG names, have been beaten up enough. He sees a coming period of stability in rates and says in a week or two, equity investors are going to, quote, get back into equity investing and stop worrying about every tick in the bond markets. He adds that the public is very engaged in the market, and a lot of the stocks that have fallen double-digit with double-digit earnings growth. They have them, and they're going to be secular growers. You can read much more about this call in the glass half-full situation he sees at CNBC slash pro. Coming up, shares of PayPal and Square have soared in the past year as contactless payment took over the took over amid the pandemic. But don't count the credit card names out. MasterCard is sitting near an all-time high. So what will be the better bet? We'll discuss that as we head to break. March is Women's History Month, and we're spotlighting some of our CNBC contributors. Here's Metropolitan Capital CEO Karen Feinerman on her childhood hero. The historical figure that most comes to mind for me is Billie Jean King. And I was a very, very young tennis player when she was near the height of her fame with the Battle of the Sexes match. And I was a tomboy, and I loved playing sports, and I always wanted to play on the boys' team. And when Billie Jean King was playing Bobby Riggs, I have never rooted so hard for any person or any team as I did that day. And I didn't really realize until later all that she had done for women's equality and all the sacrifices that she made. Welcome back to The Exchange. For better or worse, the pandemic has driven rapid change in the retail sector. Courtney Reagan joins us now with a closer look at where things stand. Courtney. Hi, Melissa. So the level of change previously predicted to take years really occurred in just several months. Already weak retailers like Neiman Markets, J. Crew, J. Pen- J.C. Penney filed for bankruptcy likely quicker than they would have without unprecedented store closure mandates and obviously lower cash flow as a result. Online shopping exploded up 41 percent, according to Adobe. The Commerce Department says online retail is now 21 percent of all U.S. retail. That's up from 14.5% pre-pandemic. Retailers using stores and online together saw record demands for programs like buy online, pick up and store. Those were up 48% in 2020, also according to Adobe. Now, Target was ahead of competition. Its drive-up option grew more than 500%. And those that didn't have curbside options before, like Best Buy, basically built them nearly overnight. The consumer electronics company is now calling itself digitally led, which is causing Best Buy to reimagine its business model. The market share of online grocery had been very small as a percent of total before. While well off pandemic highs, according to 1010 data, online grocery market share is now 15%. That's more than double what it was pre-pandemic. And when we did go in store, we tried not to touch anything that we didn't have to. So contactless payment soared. According to the Electronic Transaction Association, contactless payments are up 150 percent and U.S. mobile payment users have grown 32 percent. And the ease of this is expected to keep the trend going even after we're back to a little bit more of normal conditions. Melissa? All right, Courtney, thank you. Courtney Reagan, Roblox is open for trade. Let's bring in Josh Lipton. Uh, It's up more than 40% so far, Josh. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's maybe not too surprising, Melissa, to some. I mean, certainly if you're a parent um, or you have a kid in your life, you have heard of Roblox. Uh, My eight-year-old nephew, Jack, is certainly a Roblox guy um, in 2020 enormous growth for that platform. You know, you saw the daily active users jump 85% 
um, to 33 million. Now, remember, most um, pretty young, 50%, in fact, of those Roblox fans are under 13. Um, there are some interesting questions, though, and I heard your great interview with Doug Clinton just a few minutes ago. There's some good questions I know analysts do have um, about this company. One is going to be, and it's obviously not just a question for Roblox. It is going to be a question if you are a video game investor, you're thinking all that growth, all that momentum in 2020, what does happens uh, in 2021? What happens post-pandemic um, when kids can go back to school? The fair and honest uh, really answer to that is Roblox doesn't really know. No company knows. Investors don't know. Um, everybody's trying to give their estimates. I thought it was very interesting. Strauss Zelnick, uh, chief of Take-Two on the last earnings call, he thought post-pandemic video games are going to stay stronger than pre-pandemic because there's just so many more people who have come to video games. But Strauss said, listen, there's going to be a fall off here. How much we're waiting to see. And that certainly pertains to Roblox as well. In fact, uh, their 2021 guidance, Melissa, did suggest a slowdown. Yeah, and in that guidance too, Josh, I thought it was interesting. They said that they would look to uh, the older demographic to expand their opportunities. So they <laughs> yeah. acknowledge that, yeah. that their strength is in, in young people. And they're saying, oh, the older folks, I guess, like us, um, you know, they'll target <laughs> well, us. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> right. I think that's another really great point because that's um, another big question mark for investors on this one is so you have a lot of young kids on that platform. If you're Roblox, you want to move to an older demographic because as you get older, people spend more. Um, now, some are pretty skeptical of that. You know, I know there's some folks on the street who think, you know, at the end of the day, what is cool to my nephew, eight year old Jack <laughs> is not necessarily cool to the 18 year old. But um, Roblox could credibly say, listen, we are we are at work in this and we've right. had some traction. You know, they don't just do games. You know, Melissa, when they talk about on their platform, that they have millions of experiences. What they're referring to is they have games and they have entertainment. They have virtual concerts and some of them have attracted a lot of eyeballs. You know, in November, uh, the rapper Lil Nas X mm -hmm. had a, a virtual performance in Roblox. You had 30 million visits. So um, some potential traction there. But that is another question. If you're putting money to work in this name that you have to think about. Yep, up 50% right now. Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton keeping us posted on Roblox, which just opened for trade. Meantime, Visa and MasterCard are trading above their record closing highs from just yesterday. The legacy payment stocks have held up pretty well versus their fintech peers. Square and PayPal were both hit by the recent tech sell-off and are down, down about 20% from record highs. MasterCard's North American president joined Power Lunch just yesterday with her thoughts on how the pandemic has impacted payment processing. What we're seeing right now are consumers really embracing digital payments more rapidly than they've ever before. We started to really see it take hold in uh, 2019 when banks started to issue products with contactless capability. Now, what the pandemic did is it actually accelerated the use of these products because people were not only concerned about safety and security and convenience, but they were also concerned about hygiene. Joining us now is Lisa Ellis, partner and senior analyst at Moffitt Nathanson. Lisa, great to have you with us. Hey, thanks, Melissa. When, when we think about Visa and MasterCard as reopening plays, what should we think of the most in terms of, of how they leverage that? Is it the increase in travel and entertainment? Is that, is that how they are most leveraged to, to the reopening? Yeah, for Visa and MasterCard, the single most important thing is travel. Um, Pre-pandemic, travel, particularly international travel, was 20, almost 25% of their revenues. That took a hard hit 
in 2020, of course. And uh, and so the most important driver over the next few quarters for them is exactly that rate and pace of borders reopening and when people are going to be willing to get back on airplanes and start traveling again. Wrapped around that comes other spending, entertainment spending, luxury goods spending, right? People want to buy the new outfit or buy like the handbag. Um, and all of that tends to be highly carded and often highly, you know, high use of credit card, all of which is, is good for Visa and MasterCard. Which, which uh, card processor or, or card um, issuer has the most leverage to corporate spending? And, and how does that factor in, in terms of viewing these, these players and, and how much they can, can benefit from that reopening? Yeah. Yeah. So American Express has the most um, you know, linkage to corporate spending uh, you know, pre-pandemic. E- even for them, though, it's a relatively you know, smaller, maybe smaller than you'd think in terms of how much uh, is corporate T&E, like, you know, sort of in the 10-ish percent range. We're not and they are not really expecting that spending to come back really ever or certainly not for a number of years. Um, but on the flip side with American Express, they, um, you know, they have... Uh, they are a huge recovery play if you believe in this sort of concept of, you know, the roaring 20s, the sort of luxury goods suspending. They're very tied to high end restaurants and luxury goods and travel. And so if you believe that consumers just can't wait to get back out there, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, Amex has that sort of offsetting. But they're the ones, you know, with the biggest exposure to corporate travel spending, which, you know, we and many others are expecting, you know, will likely really never go back to the levels it was pre pandemic. If that is the case, and is there a permanent impairment? To- to their valuation? Um, I, I mean, at some level, yes. Meaning, yeah, that's a piece that, you know, I think everyone has just sort of taken out of numbers and is not expecting to come back in. Uh, in there, um, On the flip side, though, you know, what we've been talking about around digitization of payments broadly, um, of course, benefits them. And particularly for Amex, I'd highlight in small businesses, you know, small businesses, have a ton of spending and are still actually were heavy check users, like 50% of small business payments were done with checks. Now with the pandemic, of course, people aren't in the office, they're not cutting checks. And so actually kind of, again, another offset with Amex uh, has been that actually, um, you know, kind of moving into valuation is now an expectation that some of that small business spending where they're also very, very strong, uh, will um, you know? Will now you know digitize more, much more quickly than it than it was uh, what was happening pre-pandemic. And just quick last question, Lisa. You also like Square and PayPal, which have seen sort of um, you know the, the 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 headwinds from this rotation that we're seeing out of high valuation names. So, do you advise clients? I mean, do you take that into consideration? Just what the market sentiment is and, and how it's regarding these high high valuation names in recommending maybe a Visa and Mastercard over them. Yeah, we are preferenced Visa and MasterCard um, right now, uh, and actually Amex too, for that matter, over uh, PayPal and Square for that reason, um, just because of the relative valuation spread, and they are all beneficiaries of these secular trends. So we do like, I don't know, like a one-year time horizon Visa and Master, the networks um, better. Um, But that said, uh, you really can't go wrong with PayPal and Square if you have a longer-term time horizon, because Many of these secular trends, and I would point out, particularly with PayPal, who is very tied to e-commerce, you know, watching the prior segment, that e-commerce penetration of e-retail still is only 21%. We still have a huge amount of runway to go uh, in e-com, and we're actually expecting 
um, a lot of that, you know, that elevated rate of e-com adoption to continue in 2021 and 2022 because the experience is so much better for consumers and retailers. It takes time for those retailers to build mm -hmm. out all that infrastructure, et cetera. So actually, if we were going to pick one of those, we'd say this, you know, the, the safer bet, especially with this pull off, the, the, you know, the pullback in the stocks more recently um, would be PayPal because we continue to be very bullish on sort of the momentum related to e-commerce. All right. Lisa, thank you. Lisa Ellis, Moffat Nathanson. Still ahead, results from a new study from Eli Lilly could mean a major breakthrough in treating COVID-19. We'll talk to Lilly's chief scientific officer about what it means in the fight against the virus next. And let's get a check on Roblox once again. It just opened for trade. $72 a share. It's up 62% in its debut. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Good news out today on Eli Lilly's COVID antibody cocktail. Meg Terrell joins us now with the details and a special guest. Meg. Hey, Melissa. Well, new results from a large phase three study of Eli Lilly's uh, cocktail of two antibody drugs for COVID-19 show that it can reduce the risk of hospitalizations and deaths by 87 uh, percent. This was in the setting where this drug has emergency use authorization, high risk patients who are recently diagnosed with this disease. Now, uh, the Eli Lilly compound, as well as one from Regeneron, both uh, forms of antibodies that are on the market for COVID. Uh, we know, though, at the beginning, at least, there it was difficult for some patients to get access to these. And there are also questions about how well they'll work against the variants. So to help us answer those questions, let's bring in Dr. Dan Skowronski. He's chief scientific officer at Eli Lilly. Dr. Skowronski, it's great to see you. Um, these data are, are really exciting. I mean, a drug that can keep people out of the hospital, prevent deaths. We already knew that the data were good behind the antibody drugs. What do these today add to the picture? Yeah, thanks, Meg. It's, it's great to be chatting. It was just uh, a little bit less than a year ago that we talked about kicking off this program. And, and here we are a year later now with the, the highest level of, of evidence that we use for drugs, two randomized controlled trials, uh, highly statistically significant uh, on, a, on a key outcome measure here, which is uh, reducing hospitalizations and deaths, it's beyond our wildest expectations that we could achieve this level of efficacy. If you look at the data from these trials and, and the trial that we, we just announced today, we had a, about a 6% hospitalization or death rate in the placebo group versus less than 1% in the treatment group. That means you only need to treat about 20 patients to avoid one hospitalization or death. Across the two studies, 14 people died, unfortunately, in the placebo group uh, of, of about 750 subjects. No subjects uh, out of a th more than 1,000 treated uh, died. So just over 50 treatments to avoid one death. That's incredible data. We, we don't have many drugs against any disease. For, forget about a disease as, as common as COVID-19 that can offer that level of efficacy. So what that means is now we have this evidence, I think it will open up more usage of the drug. As you pointed out, it's, uh, there hasn't been a lot of awareness, and, and some patients and physicians have been skeptical. I think we've now passed the highest hurdle of, of evidence, and, and it should really open up for, for so many patients now. At the same time, it, it's so odd to say, oh, there was an awareness, because these were the kinds of drugs, not yours specifically, it was the Regeneron cocktail, but these were the kinds of drugs that President Trump got <laughs> when he got sick with COVID. So people know about these drugs, but are enough people now getting them? And what's the biggest barrier? Is it, is it getting fixed? Yeah, that's a fair point, Meg. Maybe it's the right kind of awareness that we have to focus on. And the, the right kind of awareness comes from, from randomized controlled trials. 
um, that's one of the barriers, really, was doctors' acceptance of the data. And uh, moving from anecdotal to, to trial data is a huge step. Um, there are others. It's, it's free to patients. Uh, we we uh, make sure of that uh, to, to get the medicine. But it's an infusion. When we first launched this in, in November, it was an hour-long infusion. Now it's down to, depending on the drug, as little as 16 or, or 20 minutes. That makes it easier for patients, easier for healthcare facilities. Uh, so that's important. But probably the, the biggest factor here, Meg, is that it's the, these drugs work best early in the disease course. So it's people who are at risk who've recently been infected. And often at that moment, people don't feel that sick. They think, oh, it's like the flu. I'll probably get better. They're right. They, they probably will get better. Um, and, and in our trials, most patients do. But to see 6% end up in the hospital, 2% of, of patients die, those aren't odds you want to take. And so I think it's creating that sense of understanding that this could turn out very, very serious for any one individual. We're not great at predicting who's going to have a bad outcome beyond those risk factors like age or obesity or or high blood pressure, diabetes. And so uh, getting patients who qualify uh, treated quickly, I I think, is important. That's a change in medical care. We haven't really thought about that in the past. Doctor, it's Melissa Lee here. Um, How do you you view this drug in in light of, of the fact that more Americans are getting vaccinated at a much higher rate. The study was 769 high-risk patients, but already if you get vaccinated, the chances of of being in the hospital or dying are very slim because the vaccines are so effective. So when you take that subgroup of people who have been vaccinated and they get sick enough to go to the hospital, are you concerned that this antibody cocktail may not be as effective as the study rates show? Well, uh, you're right. The study was done in in people who haven't been vaccinated. Our our hope here is that uh, over time, everyone will be vaccinated. Vaccines will be perfectly effective and and no one will get sick and and go to the hospital. That hasn't happened yet. Um, And so for now, I think particularly uh, for people who aren't vaccinated uh, and there are so many people getting sick every day uh, with COVID-19, even even now, uh, this is an important solution for them. It's not our aspiration, though, to be uh, selling antibodies against COVID-19 to governments around the world for years to come. I I hope that uh, we're seeing uh, what could be the end of of the pandemic over the course of this year as more and more people get vaccinated. Um, At the same time, though, we want to be prepared for what happens if that's not the case and and what happens if uh, uh, the spread of the virus uh, continues despite um, uh, more and more people getting vaccinated. Yeah, as well on that point, Dan, and and I have to make this quick because we're just about out of time. You know, um, one of the risks to ending the pandemic quickly are these variants. And we have seen from some studies out of David Ho's lab at Columbia that against the B1351 variant, your cocktail loses potency. Um, Are you working on backups in case the B1351 variant circulates more here or for potential use in places where it is already prevalent? Yeah, thank you for that question. There, There are a couple of these highly mutated variants, such as that one that uh, are present in other countries. They're not here in the United States right now at any, any real numbers. Uh, they're extremely rare, uh, which is great news. And, and those variants, though, escape both the human immune system as well as synthetic antibodies like ours, which mimic the human immune system. So we, um, we're ready uh, if, if those variants come to uh, the United States or other regions and, and start to spread. Uh, we have next-generation antibodies that we're moving forward, uh, one in particular that's specific for these kinds of variants, uh, and we can add to this combination uh, uh, that we have already today uh, if we need it. All right. 
Well, very interesting. And Dan Skowronski, thanks for coming back to join us. We look forward to hearing more about that. Chief Scientific Officer Eli Lilly. Mel? Thank you. All right, Meg, thank you. Ahead, the hacks keep getting more sophisticated and more high stakes with Russia and China-backed groups behind two critical cyber attacks on U.S. systems this year alone. As these hacks escalate, are we headed for a cyber cold war? One executive's serious warning next. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back. The recent hacks of SolarWinds and Microsoft have revealed huge vulnerabilities in America's cybersecurity. And former Defense Secretary Ash Carter and MasterCard's executive chairman Ajay Banga are warning it could get even worse. Eamon Javers joins us now with the story. Eamon. Yeah, Melissa, some real concern here today. This was at a Yale CEO conference uh, that was moderated by Jeffrey Sonnenfeld this morning. A number of CEOs really worried now about where all of this could go if these attacks get worse. And we saw Ajay Banga of MasterCard uh, saying that, you know what, when we prepare for these kinds of cyber attacks, we're not really preparing for the worst case scenario, at least the one that he envisions. Here's how he explained it. I think you need to think about the fact that this is not going to be only one sector which will get attacked. When country states come after us, they won't only come after banks or only the FAA. They will do the FAA, the traffic light system, and the hospitals on the same day. We do not do exercises cross-sectors. We barely do exercises with the security systems in a sector. So that's how we ought to respond or prepare for the next level of attack. And then the question is, how do we respond for the attacks that have already happened? We saw Ash Carter, who was the secretary of defense under President Obama, laying out his argument. He feels like the United States needs to hit back now in response to these cyber attacks from Russia and China, but not necessarily hit back in kind. Take a listen to what he had to say. If somebody attacked you in one way, you don't have to respond in that way. You look at their entire surface of vulnerability and you go where you can hurt them back. Both the Russians, my experience, both the Russians and the Chinese do respond to pushback and it doesn't escalate out of control. Ash Carter there suggesting that maybe one way the the Biden administration could respond is by hitting back at President Putin of Russia, particularly in areas of his legitimacy and control over the society in Russia. That's one way for the United States to exercise its broad power here. Overall, guys, you get the impression now that these CEOs and government officials are really thinking about this, at least to my ear, uh, like a new cyber cold war. That is not a hot war yet, necessarily, but a low-level conflict where people People are responding to each other, tit-for-tat provocations and responses, all of that with the idea that if this gets much hotter, it could get a lot worse. Yeah. Melissa, back over to you. Out time. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers. That does it for us in The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.